The Tablet Show, episode 91, with guest Rob Daigneault. Recorded live Friday, June 21st, 2013. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show. Conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to Rob Daniel about building back-end services for mobile applications. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to The Tablet Show. It's Carl and Richard, and we're talking tablets. We're talking mobile backends with Rob coming up here in just a few minutes. But first... What's up, Mr. Campbell? I'm, uh, you know, got nothing to complain about. Did you actually get a chance to pick up those surfaces at TechEd? No, I did not. Never did, huh? That's now, too The bad. line was too long, and I said, screw it. The line was pretty epic, but we, for those who didn't know, at TechEd, if you were an attendee, you could get a Surface RT for $99 and a Surface Pro for 389 That was the real lure to me, was the Surface Pro. Yeah, it's just like a $1,200 machine, yeah. right? Yeah. So the Pro disappeared on me. You know who grabbed it? Uh, let's see. Your wife. The art daughter. Oh, really? Pressure sensitive. Pressure sensitive pen. Stylus. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the being able to really draw on the screen, that's it. Gone. Wow. Took it. So that I did not think of it for that form, but you know, a Wacom tablet or, and Wacom actually makes a device called a Cintiq, which is a big 20 inch screen that's got the same touch is more expensive than a pro. Well, that Asus Triple E that I have that I got uh, on the road trip a couple years yeah. ago, I run, loaded Windows 8 on it, mm-hmm. that has a Wacom with a pressure-sensitive pen. Yeah. It's really nice. It's just a little bulky. It's about twice as thick as the Surface Pro. Which is interesting. But, you know, it begs the question to me when you talk about the pressure sensitivity. Okay, fine for art, but is there a metaphor there for regular apps mm. that the varying pressure would be some way to communicate something useful? Yeah, I'm not sure. It's really interesting idea, isn't it? Just using styluses for something other than writing or clicking or drawing, but using it as another u- interface. That's a nice creative challenge. I like it. It's it's something I've been thinking about watching how effective it's been. It just begs this idea when we have more of them out there. So has Alex been able to do any real drawing and art with it? That she's yeah, yeah she's, been, she's making her webcomic with it. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, that's great. It's cool. Very cool. Well, let's get started with Better Know Framework. Awesome. So what do you got, buddy? What do I got? I'll tell you what I got. Microsoft is going to pay real money to security researchers who find and submit security holes discovered in Windows 8.1. Huh. They're also going to be paying hard cash for faults found in Internet Explorer 11. Because hmm. they got more money than they know what to do with but they're a little short on this kind of stuff. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash win81hacking, this is a new story, just came out June 21st, that explains how they're going to do it. They're going to give away a prize of $200,000, putting forward in a technical competition for demonstrating the most innovative way of preventing the exploitation of faults. Pretty cool. Wow, that's cool. This is a TechNet article. Yep. Is is at its root, so I'll I'll put a link into the TechNet article because... Yeah, this uh, uh, bounty program, it's a big deal. It is a big deal, yeah. 
bug bounty. Well, and and especially security vulnerability bounty, like that, just encouraging folks to to uh, get paid to fix them, not get paid to exploit them. This has been the hacker's dream, right? I want to get paid to to hack people and then tell them how to you know how to protect themselves, right? Yeah, it's a little strange, but it is a good way to crowdsource, you know, and get get all that stuff happening rather than relying on people's, you know, sense of doing what's right. Absolutely. <laughs> cool, man. There you nice go. find. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 68, which was a while back. That's the yeah. uh, beginning of, the, of 2013. This was the show we did with Ray Bango, where we're talking about JavaScript and IE. You know, Ray, he's awesome. Absolutely. And uh, lots of really interesting uh, conversations there. And long-term fan, because I've read many of his comments over the year, uh, Rod Falanga wrote us a comment. And he said, great show. I've got a couple of things to say in a question. But first, I really like what Ray said about F12 and changing the user agent. I right. had no idea. Yeah. So, yeah, if you hit F12 on your browser, you have access to a bunch of HTTP headers and you can change them if you want to. Yeah. Uh, secondly, Carl, you mentioned that Scott Hanselman has a video on using Win8 on a non-touch device. Right. I have two Win8 devices, the desktop I'm using at the moment, which I upgraded to Windows 8. And it is a non-touch device. Mm -hmm. The other is a Sony Vio laptop I purchased recently, which is a touch device. I admit that the laptop is easier to use, but I really don't have problems with using Windows 8 on my desktop. In fact, I prefer it. I do too. Carl, would you please share a link to Scott's video on using Windows 8 on a non-touch device? I'm always interested in learning more on how to use Windows. If there's anything on shortcut keys I could use, I'd love to know them. Dude, it's on the the blog site. Go to Hanselman.com. Right. It's easy to find. Uh, last thing, I'm going to jump into the whole poo-pooing of the Windows 8 bandwagon. I see that a lot, too, and it bugs me. It's coming from people who struggle with any change. But what gets me is if Microsoft comes up with something new, then it's, oh, no, I can't have that. But if someone else comes up with something new, then, okay, let's try it. I don't get that at all. Are we supposed to say with AXP interface? Yeah, XP was great, but let's move on. Right. Yeah, Rod, I'm with you. My big dev machine, the big three-screen 4960 by 1600, is now running Win 8. Admittedly, almost always in desktop mode because it's primarily for development. but uh, And there is no Metro development environment yet. Uh, but yeah, it runs great. Not a big deal. It's all about the shortcut keys. Easy to use. And I have watched Scott's uh, video. And uh, yeah, hey, Windows X is your friend. It is. Win X, man. That's the magic one. So Rod, a tablet show mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a tablet show mug, just write a comment on the website at thetabletshow.com. And with that, let me introduce our guest. Rob Dano has more than 20 years' experience designing and implementing applications and products for a broad array of industries, from financial services to manufacturing to retail and travel. He's served in such prominent positions as Director of Architecture for Monster.com and Manager of Application Development at Fidelity Investments. Rob is currently Slalom Consulting's Practice Lead for Application Development in Boston, He's also the author of the best-selling book, Service Design Patterns, released by Addison Wesley on the Martin Fowler Signature Series, was recently selected as a Microsoft MVP in systems integration, and has been known to speak at such conferences as InfoQ, Dr. Dobbs, VS Live, and SOA Symposium. Welcome, Rob. How you doing? Great to be here. Awesome. Service Design Patterns. This is an interesting idea. I don't know how I've missed this book. Well... I actually have it. Do you really? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I have it. It's a great book. Well, thank you so much. Um, gee, I don't know how you missed it either, Richard. Yeah, I'm <laughs> a slacker, clearly. <laughs> well, I'll get one out to you for sure. 
Thanks. Uh, not that I have no problem buying it, but <laughs> I just, it sort of hit me as this, well, duh, there are a set of patterns around building good services. So, Rob, can we talk through a few of these service design patterns? What's sort of the normal things that you see? Oh, certainly. Well, you know, first of all, I, th- I think a lot of the people who are listening to the show are, are pretty familiar with a lot of the design patterns libraries out there. Sure. You know, go- going all the way back to the Gang of Four, they kind of started the trend. And then up to uh, the early 2000s with uh, Martin Fowler's book on, on patterns of enterprise application architecture. Um, the book that I've got out there, it's actually been out there for a couple of years now. Happy to say it's, it's doing pretty well still. Um, I, I decided to look at the world and, and figure, you know, there's a certain way of probably categorizing um, all these different patterns that we've seen people been using in the wild. And certainly design patterns are, are things that people have been using successfully for for many years. I didn't invent these things. I just kind of noticed what people were doing, uh, codified them, and organized them. Mm. Um, so if we look at that, kind of starting at the at the highest levels, I have, I have several categories. And the first, and probably the most important, are the web service API styles. Uh, because once you pick a style, it's kind of hard to move off that style onto some other API style. Uh, a second category is the actual client-service interaction styles, how the client interacts with the service and vice versa. And uh, that, too, figures prominently when we talk about tablets and uh, creating services specifically for mobile devices. Then we can talk about uh, request and response management. There's a series of patterns there that kind of cross the divide over into the service interface and, and really speak to how the service information um, gets routed Mm -hmm. to the correct handler and then how we deal with requests and response. Then we go behind the service facade and we have a series of patterns that fall under the category of web service implementation styles. That's how you write the code in the service itself. Then, uh, like we see in a lot of different architectures out there, we've got these cross-cutting concerns. So I have a set of uh, patterns that falls under the category of web service infrastructures. Mm -hmm. And then finally, uh, a few patterns that speak to how we can evolve services over time such that when changes roll out, and inevitably they will, how we can put those changes out there without causing the client to walk in lockstep with us and have to upgrade with every little change that we do. So that's kind of the bird's eye view of all the patterns out there uh, sorted by categories. I remember when service orientation was just sort of this dreamy idea that was it's like a mythical uh, uh, chalice you had to grab. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's interesting you you bring up SOA. Um, it's inevitable that whenever people speak to me about the book, SOA comes up. Sure, service oriented architecture. And honestly, you know, when I started the book, I thought I was going to create a book on SOA design patterns, and. The more I spoke to different people out there, the more I came to understand that I really didn't know what SOA was, and everyone you spoke to had a different definition for it. In fact, Martin Fowler wrote a a pretty famous blog some time back, and he labeled it service-oriented ambiguity. Mm. Um, You know, if you you look at uh, even the OASIS reference model, it's it's kind of abstract. Uh, Probably, I think the the best definition for me is one from a fellow named Eric Newcomer. He's the CTO of Credit Suisse Bank. And he says service-oriented architecture, it's really more of a style of design that guides um, 
all aspects of, of creating and using business services throughout their life cycle from their conception to their retirement. And that's actually a lot different than I think we've seen in other communities, like in the Microsoft world, if we remember the four tenants, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that was really kind of an interesting take on it. So long story short, I tried to sort through all this stuff, never really felt comfortable with it, and came to the conclusion that, you know, I don't really want to go in that direction. But I saw that people were still out there using services of various types, whether it's soap wisdom services or restful style services, and they were getting stuff done. So I decided to take the book in that direction and really be a little bit more pragmatic. So I've really kind of sidestepped the whole SOA thing and left that to others to debate. Yeah, feel free to figure it amongst yourselves. I got to get work done. Yes. Yeah. We, we got work to do. Yeah. Well, I think the whole takeaway from SOA was just isolation, you know, isolating services and, and sort of uh, making them less interdependent. Yeah, I think so. You know, but, you know, there are others out there that say, well, there's this thing called SOA composition or service composition. And just like in the old days of distributed objects, uh, they said, what we envision is a way to assemble these larger and more complex things by plugging services into each other, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes by using orchestrations. I think really kind of the big shift was away from thinking about object-oriented design and specifically ob- object-oriented analysis because business users really couldn't grok that. Um, it didn't make sense to them, but they did understand business services. So mm-hmm. we got to handle uh, a way to speak to them um, that made a little bit more sense, I think. And is it just, yeah, I, I'm still with Carl here on this idea of just keeping everything independent from each other. Like, doesn't seem to be all that complex. Uh, the fewer not. dependencies, the better. Oh, absolutely. Of course, you know, the higher uh, the dependencies, the higher the degree of coupling, mm. the more problems you can have. And it's interesting, if, if we look back to the early days when they were talking about SOA, um, there was an argument that SOA means loosely coupled. And obviously, that wasn't true in the soap whistle days. Um, they, we had great difficulties, even though most of the time we were communicating over HTTP, we had great difficulties communicating across different technology stacks because all that routing stuff that was put into the SOAP messages was quite a bit different from technology stack to technology stack. But this is, I know we're going to end up on web services before this show ends. And I suspect once we get on web services, we'll never get off. <laughs> so before we go there, let's, are there alternatives? Like, obviously, there's the precursors with the, you know, the more RPC type communications. But even in a, in a modern development environment, especially talking about mobile, isn't it all going to have to be web services? Or have you seen other implementations? Um, you know, most of the stuff I've been doing over the last several years is around uh, web services. And when I say web services, I do mean um, using HTTP, uh, either as just a, a simple transport protocol or as the full application protocol. Right. You're not necessarily talking about Microsoft XML web services. No, no. But, you know, aside from using HTTP, certainly there are going to be other ways that we, other protocols that we use, you know, TCP, UDP, there'll be times for a real-time streaming protocol. There's a ton out there. We get down, yeah, it, it, it's more got to do with speed, right, or, or timeliness? 
Uh, certainly. So obviously, you know, things like UDP can be very fast, but not so reliable. You know, yeah. you're, you're trading off a bit. Uh, real-time streaming protocols, things in that family, they're about a, a certain problem set. Um, HTTP is just a really nice generic protocol for communications. And I think um, it's really opened the door for integration across disparate platforms much, much better than anything we've seen in the past. Just as an aside, uh, you reminded me of a story. Uh, I was working with some game developers in the early days of the public Internet, so it must have been 98, 99, and we were playing with UDP to communicate game information. Mm. But because it, it wasn't reliable, but it was very, very fast. Send them twice. Know, yeah, that was sort of trade. And yeah, they ended up just sending every packet twice. Yep. 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 They don't figure it out. Don't test anything. Don't just send everything twice. Yep. One of them will get through. One of them will get enough. through. Yep. <laughs> and it was still faster than, than using TCP and being directly connected. Yeah. Yeah. You know, of course, uh, the reason why that is is because we have to have a, a three-way handshake to establish the connection. And, uh, you know, HTTP, since it rides on top of that, it's got the same... Uh, issues involved that being right. said you know there are ways to work around that and it's also the reliability right did did it work did it you know did it uh get delivered or not there's a lot of overhead for that that's and right so you sort of get these bonks if you're doing a a stream with tcp you know it goes and it goes and it goes and it goes and it and then it pauses and then it goes and it goes and it yep. goes so doing any kind of real-time anything is difficult I also think there's a booby trap there. So you start, you, you, you take UDP and you start building reliability into it. And when you're done, you've basically made a lousy version of TCP. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, and there are cases where if you miss a packet, it doesn't matter because guess what? There's another one coming. Yeah. Don't worry. (laughs) It'll be okay. That's why, you know, that's, that explains Skype in a nutshell right there, right? Yeah. (laughs) Cause just because you didn't need that syllable, that's all right. You'll, uh, we'll say it again. (laughs) this portion of the tablet show is brought to you by our good friends at telerik hey can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills i didn't think so so our friends at telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development automated testing agile project management and content management and we're talking free free not a trial not a demo but free complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems, all of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources, such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting the tablet show. All right. Have we walked around the big gorilla in the room now and we're going to go into HTTP web services and stay for the rest of the evening? Yeah. Do we have to? Let's do it. I think this is the way everybody's doing stuff. Although obviously there's different flavors, and I think you you said it very politely, Rob, because because <laughs> REST lives in the HTTP world, and REST makes people angry. Um, some people. 
<laughs> Not the, there are people who uh, have a whole religion around it. Oh yeah, and they're ready to tell you how you're doing it wrong. I love Web API. That's all I'm going to say. I do too. Love do it, too. love it, love it. It really depends on what you're doing. And, you know, it's in the book, I talk about different API styles. And my book actually is embraceive of the alternative styles. So the subtitle is Fundamental Design Solutions for Soap Wisdle and RESTful Web Services. Nice. I, I felt that there really were, were common design approaches that are shared across the styles, which obviously caused a, a fair number of discussions and debate. Mm-hmm. Now, what have people got against the soap whistle thing? Well, it's all the classic stuff Lurks. that it everything goes over post. We're tunneling through post. We're not using the HTTP protocol as it was designed. It's bloated. Um, yep. It's um, the soap payloads are well, they're fat. Let's just say it. Especially if you use a WS Death Star. <laughs> they are big luke i am your protocol no yes. no 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 that's and, wrong you know the funny thing there is that um a lot of people have said that well gee the reason to use that style is because you get all the specs yeah you know things like reliability things like distributed transactions things like WS security and the list really went on pretty long in the end we didn't use a whole lot of those things right i didn't find them as compatible as you thought they were like just trying to match if i you know i wasn't worried about the fatness because i was inside the same network i was living with a bunch of java guys and a bunch of net guys and we just wanted to be able to do transactions together mm. but trying yep. to line up the schemas was terrifying oh on, on a number of fronts we'll try to explain a data set to a to a java guy <laughs> you know it's a whole nother layer of nasty. Think about some of those spe specs there. There, there's a talk I did some years ago about distributed transactions, and the title was "Distributed Transactions Are Evil." So I felt that this is true regardless of whether or not you use that over HTTP. HTTP just makes it that much more worse. So the the whole idea of WS atomic transactions I thought was flawed to begin with. Yeah. And, and, well, and, and plus just got out of control. Well, I mean, we ended up abandoning web services for that because we knew it, what the endpoints were. We knew it was .NET and Java, and we ended up using a direct interop layer. Yeah. Just calling components to each other and, and you know, genie and living with it. Mm. Yep. Uh, and knowing it wasn't going to, you know, there was this vision, again, I think it's a service-oriented or, uh, architecture. It's a SOA dream kept telling us oh no no stick with using nothing but xml and text for everything yeah and it just you know you thought the part that would have been easy is it would have worked together it was just going to be fat and slow but it didn't work together well either well they did get better over time there was this thing called the web services interoperability task force and they did make some good strides to bring together microsoft and the other stacks out there uh but the bigger dream obviously didn't live up to what they said it would be right. UDDI, yeah, didn't work. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This this Wizzle worked. I didn't have a problem with Wizzle. It basically <laughs> was generated and it let you know what was there. Okay, well, it uh, works if you never have to touch it. Yeah, nice. If you have to touch it, it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. Wizzle is good for generating out proxies. 
right? It's right. good for that sort of productivity thing. Uh, and, and, you know, that's where some of the Rastafarians step in and say, well, the whole concept of a proxy did is Did you just say Rastafarians? I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did talk about the, you know, those who have this as a religion, right? So that's what they call them. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean to derail you, but I couldn't let that go uncommented. Well, the thing is, Rastafarian sounds so chill. Right? It's like, it's okay, man. We all work together. Right? Yeah. Try this. <laughs> Here. But that's not how they are. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. That's not rest. That's that what is, they say all the time. That is correct. Yeah. Actually, you know, I think most of the time when people talk about rest, they have this really naive concept that all we have to do is expose a service in some readable URI, and that's not REST at all. REST is, is actually a, a number of constraints, and I would, I would say that most of the so-called RESTful services we see out there are not. So why are they not? Well, so if we go back to Fielding's definition on what REST is, um, it really is a number of different constraints. Um, so we can go over a few of these. Uh, many are quite simple. You know, most services these days imply kind of a, a client server style of communications. And we're not talking client server circa eighties or nineties here. We're just sure. saying that one, one piece of software talks to another, right? Um, but the other ones are, are kind of harder to achieve. So for example, you got to be stateless if you're going to be restful. Mm -hmm. Right. Now that, it's, that's a requirement. Um, not all services need to be stateless. You know, um, it's okay sometimes to be stateful. But if you are stateful, if you're keeping uh, memory from a given client request from one request to the next in server memory, you're not being restful. Um, hmm. What else? Cacheable responses. You know, you got to provide the ability to make responses cacheable such that they can be picked up by clients who are querying out through intermediaries. Um, and if you're not caching responses, you're not taking advantage of that, you're not being restful. And, you know, the list goes on and on for there. Yep. There's some other interesting things like uniform interface that essentially means, well, I should be clear on this. REST doesn't mean HTTP, by the way. Right. Um, HTTP and the web are really just kind of the best examples of the REST idea. Uh, but with HTTP, we have those those common server methods, get, put, post, delete. So that's your common uniform interface. There's a lot of services out there that are so-called RESTful, but they only use get and post. Well, they're not really taking advantage of the entire protocol. They're not being RESTful. So you could be RESTful with UDP? Oh, gosh. I would guess you could. I can't say I haven't used UDP in a while. Well, so you've got to do a lot of work, but you certainly could. I mean... You could be. If you can with HTML, you can with UDP. Certainly, yeah. I mean, there's there's another requirement of REST that I'd say a very small minority out there actually does. It's that idea of hypermedia as the engine of application state. Mm. And I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people about that. Um, it's basically saying that in a response, the service says to the client, here are the different things that you can do. And it gives essentially links to the client that it can parse and then follow those links out to get those things done. 
Right. So it's it's leading the client through state transitions, and that's where we get the whole term REST, representation state transfer. Yeah, so you're basically feeding it, here are your choices for what's next. Yep. And, and that carries the state forward. That's correct. And I found uh, Roy Fielding's blog post on that hypertext-driven... Co- I just love that we have the guy's blog post. Mm. He wrote back in 2008 that says, this is how it works, guys. This was yep. the point. That was a very good article. I remember that one pretty well. I think he was he was talking about... Um, if I recall, he was talking about some API out there. And he said that because... Um, there was semantic meaning in the different URI segments. Um, he, there was so much coupling going on that it yeah. ought to be called X-rated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's exactly what he said. This is RPC. It screams RPC. There's so much coupling on display that it should be giving an X-rating. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But it speaks to that greater concept of there's no you want it to be very uncoupled but you do still carry state forward you just carry it forward in the uris that's well in the message itself and the uris are essentially the resources that you interact with and the service is the thing that essentially carries out your request it's good stuff, and it's just interesting to get back to the, These are not new things. Like I said, this is a post from 2008. I just think that in 2013, it's sort of coming to be. They were thinking very forward when they were doing this then, but now it's like, you're doing this now, right? Most definitely. I think, and you know, it's certainly when we think about what's going on in the mobile space, this is just a natural fit. Yeah. Now, now if I can backtrack a little bit, I was talking about API styles, and we, we kind of alluded to a few of them. So we have the RPC API style. Um, that's really what we got when we did SOAP WSDL for the most part. Mm-hmm. We have another form, Message API. Some people call that Document API. You could do that with WSDL and SOAP, uh, but not as easily. Most often the time, we just kind of put this URI out there that acts as a, a Dropbox for messages. And based upon the content, you execute some logic uh, given what's what's in there. The final one, which is really uh, uh, in line with what we're talking about here, is this idea of a resource API. So there's some resource out there in some type of URI that you can interact with. Um, quite often they're restful, but not always, and for the reasons we've been talking about. Mm. So you can see why it's it's not so easy once you pick an API style to move from one to the other. You're kind of married to it. Right. Before you were talking a little bit about the, the exceptions, you know, the reasons why things can't be restful, and you say they can, you know, for statelessness, for example. Mm. What's a, I was trying to think of a good example of using REST APIs where there is state. And uh, can you give me, give me an example of that? Well, let's, let's make sure that we're on the same page regarding what we mean by being stateful. Sure. A lot of people have confused this over time, saying that, you know, it, for example, on websites, if we're using cookies, we're violating the, the rule. That's not really true. No, it's not. The state's on the client, not on the server. Yeah. And, and what we're talking about here, and, and remember, Fielding's paper was about trying to identify the characteristics that made the web as scalable as it's become. Yeah. So he noticed that for those sites that did not... um allow for session state between client re- requests, 
generally we had greater performance, greater skill, scalability around that. So, of course, with ASP.NET, we can either turn on session uh, state or not. But what, you know, if I'm doing something where, you know, the, call, the, the server needs to know a little bit about the context of what I'm doing, can I not keep that state on the client and then send that, even if, if it's a couple of name value pairs, just send that as a sort of a state bag up with my payload uh, so the server knows, you know, what, what my context is. So Absolutely. long as that's not, you know, we're not talking about, you know, crazy levels of UI data or anything like that, but just, you know, simple things. Absolutely. So you are totally in line with the principles of REST if the service receives everything it needs in a given request to carry out that request. Right. Now, of course, that, you know, that makes it a little bit more difficult on the client. They're going to have to carry on, uh, hold on to more state themselves. And, you know, you might have an impact on what you're putting into each individual request. You might have to send more information. Mm-hmm. Or it might mean when the service gets the call, it has to do some sort of lookup that it did the last time because right. it doesn't have that stuff in memory to go after again. Yeah, and you wouldn't necessarily call that being stateful because the state exists on the client. You're sort of passing it up. That's right. Yeah. Every, like you said it right. The server is getting everything it needs to do that, that thing. It's not expected to hold on to anything between requests. That's right. And, and so why is this good? Why is this good for performance and scalability? Because we don't have to worry about session affinity or plain, uh, I'm sorry, server affinity or plain tricks with load balancing such that any client session information can be picked up from any server. Right. Well, that's one of those great booby traps of scaling websites that I've run into over and over again. You know, there's three reasons you start going to multiple servers. You want reliability. You want keep performance up as the number of users increases. You want to be able to roll out updates without ever taking anything down. And as soon as you're stateful or bound to any machine, you're sticky to one of those machines, you, all three of those things is, are broken. That's right. And what have we done in the past? Okay, we we don't want to be sticky. All right, then what do we do? We we push session out into some shared memory that's that's shared across the cluster. Well, right. we're typ- typically going to incur an out-of-process call, and it's usually going to be some sort of volatile memory, which so we could lose client information. Or we could use a backing store like a SQL Server, for example. Well, you know, that's even slower. So there's all, all these workarounds, and Fielding just said, forget it. Don't even go there. Give that service everything it needs each time. Right. And this natural side effect of that is you'll keep that state data as lean as you can. Absolutely. Yeah. And it may mean that the client needs to hold on to more information between calls, but that's not so bad. Does that go against the traditional idea of REST? No, no, not it, not if it's on the client side. Fielding was really talking about the server side here. Yeah. Yeah. In the end, it's state transfer, right? Like it's the, there is state in REST. It's just how you move it around. Absolutely. So, so again, we talk about representational state transfer. We're transferring representations. A representation might be, for example, XML or JSON between the client and the server back and forth. And we use hypermedia to guide that client through state transitions. Are we focusing too much on the performance side of these things? When it comes to mobile, is that the biggest issue? Well, I think Performance is certainly pretty important there. You know, we have to deal with some pretty spotty networks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say. 
and bandwidth constrained and yeah, lean and fast. It matters. As the quality of your signal, do you ever get this uh, request that, you know, if you're transferring a lot of data and uh, maybe it's all in chunks or something like that or in, in pieces, you want to, you know, increase or decrease the size of those pieces based on the performance of the network at the time? Oh, gosh. There, there are certainly um, frameworks out there that try to do that for you. I haven't worked with them specifically. I'm thinking, though, on um, kind of on the, on the media side. Um, I had a team that was doing some work with uh, Windows Azure Media Services, mm-hmm. and there's a fast connect called Aspera that does something like that. Okay. It does kind of yeah, variable. Sort of an adaptive uh, Exactly. Variable bitrate streaming it does. Right. You know, because if you're sending something or you, you're whatever, you have a progress bar that's going up. If it doesn't move in 10 seconds, somebody might think that it's hung or something. Yeah. So when it's actually transferring a chunk. But you're, you know, you are kind of hitting on something there, I think. Um, you know, it goes without saying that. We've got to deal with the network, and a large part of service performance is not really under the control of the service itself. We got mm. to deal with these these networks in front of the service. And yeah. if you ever done a trace route, you've seen sometimes how many hops you got to go through. Yeah. Um, if we think about the service interface itself and talking about the messages, obviously that figures in pretty prominently. Um, the smaller the sizes of the request. And responses that we can get, obviously, the better. And certainly, um, you know, the different message formats uh, play a role there as well. So JSON is is the preferred format for tablets and all sorts of mobile devices. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot more concise. Uh, it's quite intuitive. Um, and, and it just is kind of natural when you're working with JavaScript, which is kind of the, the lingua franca. Franco, is that how you say it? Franca, yeah, lingua, <laughs> lingua Franca. Franca. You know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, the Over default the language. Side. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, I have seen clients try to pass some pretty massive messages back and forth, and I'm not really talking about uh, multimedia. And for multimedia, you know, movies and things of that nature, mm-hmm. you're going to use a different protocol. You're probably going to use real-time streaming sort of protocols. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you do need to pass larger messages, um, like you were saying, you may want to chunk them up and send them in bits. So the question is, how does how does a service handle all that and know essentially the beginning and the end? Well, it's it's not really rocket science. Um, you have to create first a, a correlation or a conversation ID that essentially tells the service that all these smaller messages belong together. And then usually want to inject some sort of sequence ID into each individual message. And that gives uh, the service everything it needs to, uh, to carry forward with these larger exchanges. So, guys, are we all agreed then it's Web API or nothing? I love it. I haven't seen an example where I haven't been able to use it. I think the Web API is a beautiful thing. You know, it took me a little while to get used to. Uh, I did kind of like what was going on in the older... Um, URI templating style when we had it over in WCF land. Uh, but with the ASP.NET MVC style of routing, um, once you get the hang of, of that all, it all works really, really nicely. Mm. 
And it's just a strip down. I mean, WCF came from this world of the uh, soap, Wisdel, you know, quite robust, heavy, complex set of services, which it did a good job of. But as we've sort of thinned it out, and it has actually managed to implement, like there is a template for WCF as a REST service. But Web API seems to just tear all that away and say, we'll only this then. Yeah, it's you know, I think it started getting too bulky. Uh, what they were trying to do there it was it was really kind of an awkward fit once they introduced the web HTTP binding. Uh, the web API guy said, "You know what? Let's let's push reset here, start over." And I think they did it right. If you're running on another packet, I hate to go outside of .NET per se, but there's got to be other nice lightweight frameworks like this on other platforms. Oh, there's there's a ton out there. I I honestly cannot keep up with them and. And certainly since the time I published the book, a lot more has come on the scenes. Um, in the Java world, probably one of the most popular is called JAX-RS. And, um, you know, that's very, very simple, too. It uses the URI templating approach that was uh, the thing that they were using um, over in WCF services. Hmm. Very, very similar. I like that. That's sort of happening everywhere is this idea that very simple, lightweight services uh, state transfer approaches so that we're minimizing the, the coupling. Yep. That seems to be the common theme. I think so. You know, people have really embraced this. But it is funny. I mean, a lot of people look at um, this resource API style and the RESTful approach and say, you know what, it's only good for CRUD. Mm. And I would say that's that's just not true. Anything you can do with the older SOAP WSDL style, I can do with the resource API style or RESTful style of service. I'm using Web API right now for a file uploader that uh, is an HTML, JavaScript, jQuery, and yep. sends files with progress and auto-resume and all that. But So you're battling the chunking problem right there and there. That's exactly why I brought it up, yeah, because I yeah. had the experience with it. Uh, but it's very easy to just create an, an ad hoc object you know, and put fields in there, and and as long as yeah. you have uh, the right class on the other side to match it, um, you know, turning those things back and forth into JSON objects and back into code. That's cool. It's easy. So, so Carl, you just tap in directly into the file stream. Actually, on the on the client, I'm using the file API with uh, okay. the HTML5 file API. It's now supported in all the major browsers, and it allows you to read binary data from a file that is. Um, that is provided by the user. So the user has to tell you what file. But because they've done that, they essentially say, go to town, have this file, use it, upload it, whatever you want to do with it. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. And it's been a long time coming. There's been a lot of people that have freaked out a little bit because of the security implications. But uh, as I said, you're not saying, have have at my whole hard drive. You're just saying, take this file and doing so, do something with it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just an approach. I'm just trying to think now, with the tools as they are, why wouldn't you use this RESTful approach? <sighs> you know, there's still people who are holding out. Like I said, that some people still feel that REST is just appropriate for a CRUD because they, they map the verbs, get, put, post, delete, to right. CRUD. They can't right. see beyond that. And they're still holding on to this idea that I've got to have these business process operations and for some reason they feel that really the only way to describe that is with wisdom um right. i just don't think they're there yet with us yeah i need schema 
give yeah. me schema. It's just not that yep. important. I mean, honestly, I mean, and you see this in a number of services out there on the web now. I can have a URI that, hell, let's just call it upload file. Right. You know? That's pretty easy to do or whatever you want to name it. And you post to it and you achieve the same end without all this other baggage. So right. it's actually so easy. Once you do it once, you'll never do anything. That's so easy. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's just the schema hangups, right? Yeah. It's a it's a, it's a Corba slash RPC slash soap whizdle hangover. Yeah, it's just not that difficult anymore. Yep. And a lot of people felt that the reason we needed these schemas, these service descriptors, as I call them in the book, and actually there there was a movement to introduce service descriptors in the RESTful world, but the, the folks who uh, brought that forward were roundly <laughs> dismissed, I think. Uh, but the reason that people thought we should have those things is is that was the the metadata that provided the client the knowledge to know how to use that service and create the client-side plumbing. And I think that we're seeing that that really isn't necessary anymore. And if anything, it requires the client developers to do more work because for any little change to the service descriptor, you're going to have to make some big changes on all these clients. Right. In the mobile, mobile world, how can you ask all those developers to do that work if you want them to use your service? It's, it's just not practical. Yeah, it's that's really interesting, and it, it's it's just the elimination of an awful lot of stuff you had to used to have to maintain and was consistently wrong. Well, so some people will say, well, "Gee, what what takes the pr the place of these service descriptors? How do I describe to my clients how to use my service?" And I say, um, "I don't know, a word document." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, email. as soon as you get away from that whole you know delusion that was UDDI, that I'm just going to call out onto the ether for a service and it's going to find me and tell me how to use it, right? then it, this all goes away. It's yeah. just like, hey, look, I know who I'm calling and I can ask them through some other medium, how do I get this information? Yeah. yeah. Like put it on a website? I don't know. <laughs> there you go. Just put it out there. Put it out You're there. never going to eliminate. There's no automation here. You're never going to eliminate the programmer from this. Relax. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy don't talk. punish us for having to document it. Yeah, that's crazy. Documenting stuff. That oh, is well. crazy. <laughs> now you're talking that? crazy talk. Who would do that? <laughs> so what's next? Books, uh, talks. What are you working on now? Oh gosh. Um, honestly, I am done with books. <laughs> uh, that it was is, so 2010, man. Yeah, it's you know, it's a ton of work. I'm I'm glad I did it. Um, it's been it's it's brought me to some interesting places in this world, and I've met some great people as a result. Uh, but it's just a ton of work. Yep. Um, the the thing that's really occupying my time these days is I've I've got a practice in Boston that I'm running, uh, a great team of developers working with some wonderful clients, and uh, that's kind of where I'm focusing these days. Very cool. Building software, huh? You got it, man. Ship it. What a concept. Well, come back sometime. And talk to us about some of your projects. All right. Well, thanks so much for having me, guys. Thanks for being with us, Rob. And we'll see you next time on The Tablet Show. It's not too much, but it means a lot. Just try.